Chapter Three, Part Three of the Stones of Venice, Volume Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Stones of Venice, Volume Three by John Ruskin. Chapter Three: Grotesque Renaissance, Part Three. Now the things which are the proper subjects of human fear are twofold, those which have the power of death, and those which have the nature of sin, of which there are many ranks, greater or less in power and vice, from the evil angels themselves down to the serpent which is their type, and which, though of a low and contemptible class, appears to unite the deathful and sinful natures in the most clearly visible and intelligible form. For there is nothing else which we know of so small strength and occupying so unimportant a place in the economy of creation, which yet is so mortal and so malignant. It is, then, on these two classes of objects that the mind fixes for its excitement, in that mood which gives rise to the terrible grotesque, and its subject will be found always to unite some expression of vice and danger, but regarded in a peculiar temper, sometimes, a, of predetermined or involuntary apathy, sometimes, b of mockery sometimes c of diseased and ungoverned imaginativeness for observe the difficulty which as i above stated exists in distinguishing the playful from the terrible grotesque arises out of this cause that the mind under certain phases of excitement plays with terror and summons images which if it were in another temper would be awful but of which either in weariness or in irony it refrains for the time to acknowledge the true terribleness. And the mode in which this refusal takes place distinguishes the noble from the ignoble grotesque. For the master of the noble grotesque knows the depth of all at which he seems to mock, and would feel it at another time, or feels it in a certain undercurrent of thought even while he jests with it. But the workman of the ignoble grotesque can feel and understand nothing, and mocks at all things with the laughter of the idiot and the cretin. To work out this distinction completely is the chief difficulty in our present inquiry, and, in order to do so, let us consider the above-named three conditions of the mind in succession with relation to objects of terror. A. Involuntary or predetermined apathy. We saw above that the grotesque was produced, chiefly in subordinate or ornamental art, by rude and in some degree uneducated men, and in their times of rest. At such times, and in such subordinate work, it is impossible that they should represent any solemn or terrible subject with a full and serious entrance into its feeling. It is not in the languor of a leisure hour that a man will set his whole soul to conceive the means of representing some important truth, nor to the projecting angle of a timber bracket that he would trust its representation if conceived. And yet, in this languor, and in this trivial work, he must find some expression of the serious part of his soul, of what there is within him capable of awe, as well as of love. The more noble the man is, the more impossible it will be for him to confine his thoughts to mere loveliness, and that of a low order. Were his powers and his time unlimited, so that, like Fra Angelico, he could paint the seraphim, in that order of beauty he would find contentment, bringing down heaven to earth. But by the conditions of his being, by his hard-worked life, by his feeble powers of execution, by the meanness of his employment and the languor of his heart, he is bound down to earth. It is the world's work that he is doing, and world's work is not to be done without fear. And whatever there is of deep and eternal consciousness within him, thrilling his mind with the sense of the presence of sin and death around him, must be expressed in that slight work, and feeble way, come of it what will. 
he cannot forget it among all that he sees of beautiful in nature he may not bury himself among the leaves of the violet on the rocks and of the lily in the glen and twine out of them garlands of perpetual gladness he sees more in the earth than these misery and wrath and discordance and danger and all the work of the dragon and his angels this he sees with too deep feeling ever to forget and though when he returns to his idle work it may be to gild the letters upon the page or to carve the timbers of the chamber or the stones of the pinnacle he cannot give his strength of thought any more to the woe or to the danger there is a shadow of them still present in him and as the bright colors mingle beneath his touch and the fair leaves and flowers grow at his bidding strange horrors and phantasms rise by their side grisly beasts and venomous serpents and spectral fiends and nameless inconsistency of ghastly life rising out of things most beautiful and fading back into them again as the harm and the horror of life do out of its happiness he has seen these things he wars with them daily he cannot but give them their part in his work though in a state of comparative apathy to them at the time he is but carving and gilding and must not turn aside to weep but he knows that hell is burning on for all that and the smoke of it withers his oak leaves now the feelings which give rise to the false or ignoble grotesque are exactly the reverse of these in the true grotesque a man of naturally strong feeling is accidentally or resolutely apathetic in the false grotesque a man naturally apathetic is forcing himself into temporary excitement the horror which is expressed by the one comes upon him whether he will or not that which is expressed by the other is sought out by him and elaborated by his art and therefore also because the fear of the one is true and of true things however fantastic its expression may be there will be reality in it and force it is not a manufactured terribleness whose author when he had finished it knew not if it would terrify any one else or not but it is a terribleness taken from the life a spectre which the workman indeed saw and which as it appalled him will appall us also but the other workman never felt any divine fear he never shuddered when he heard the cry from the burning towers of the earth vega medusa silo farum desmalto he is stone already and needs no gentle hand laid upon his eyes to save him i do not mean what i say in this place to apply to the creations of the imagination it is not as the creating but as the seeing man that we are here contemplating the master of the true grotesque it is because the dreadfulness of the universe around him weighs upon his heart that his work is wild and therefore through the whole of it we shall find the evidence of deep insight into nature his beasts and birds however monstrous will have profound relations with the true he may be an ignorant man and little acquainted with the laws of nature he is certainly a busy man and has not much time to watch nature but he never saw a servant cross his path nor a bird flit across the sky nor a lizard bask upon a rock without learning so much of the sublimity and inner nature of each as will not suffer him thenceforth to conceive them coldly he may not be able to carve plumes or scales well but his creatures will bite and fly for all that the ignoble workman is the very reverse of this he never felt never looked at nature and if he endeavor to imitate the work of the other all his touches will be made at random and all his extravagances will be ineffective he may knit brows and twist lips and lengthen beaks and sharpen teeth but it will be all in vain he may make his creatures disgusting but never fearful there is however often another cause of difference than this the true grotesque being the expression of the repose or play of a serious mind there is a false grotesque opposed to it which is the result of the full exertion of a frivolous one 
there is much grotesque which is wrought out with exquisite care and pains and as much labor given to it as if it were the noblest subject so that the workman is evidently no longer apathetic and has no excuse for unconnectedness of thought or sudden unreasonable fear if he awakens horror now it ought to be in some truly sublime form his strength is in his work and he must not give way to sudden humor and fits of erratic fancy if he does so it must be because his mind is naturally frivolous or is for the time degraded into the deliberate pursuit of frivolity and herein lies the real distinction between the base grotesque of raphael and the renaissance above alluded to and the true gothic grotesque those grotesques or arabesques of the vatican and other such work which have become the patterns of ornamentation in modern times are the fruit of great minds degraded to base objects the care skill and science applied to the distribution of the leaves and the drawing of the figures are intense admirable and accurate therefore they ought to have produced a grand and serious work not a tissue of nonsense if we can draw the human head perfectly and are masters of its expression and its beauty we have no business to cut it off and hang it up by the hair at the end of a garland if we can draw the human body in the perfection of its grace and movement we have no business to take away its limbs and terminate it with a bunch of leaves or rather our doing so will imply that there is something wrong with us that if we can consent to use our best powers for such base and vain trifling there must be something wanting in the powers themselves and that however skilful we may be or however learned we are wanting both in the earnestness which can apprehend a noble truth and in the thoughtfulness which can feel a noble fear no divine terror will ever be found in the work of the man who wastes a colossal strength in elaborating toys for the first lesson which that terror is sent to teach us is the value of the human soul and the shortness of mortal time and are we never then it will be asked to possess a refined or perfect ornamentation must all decoration be the work of the ignorant and the rude not so but exactly in proportion as the ignorance and rudeness diminish must the ornamentation become rational and the grotesqueness disappear the noblest lessons may be taught in ornamentation the most solemn truths compressed into it the book of genesis in all the fullness of its incidents in all the depth of its meaning is bound within the leaf borders of the gates of gerberti but raphael's arabesque is mere elaborate idleness it has neither meaning nor heart in it it is an unnatural and monstrous abortion now this passing of the grotesque into higher art as the mind of the workman becomes informed with better knowledge and capable of more earnest exertion takes place in two ways either as his power increases he devotes himself more and more to the beauty which he now feels himself able to express and so the grotesqueness expands and softens into the beautiful as in the above-named instance of the gates of gerberti or else if the mind of the workman be naturally inclined to gloomy contemplation the imperfection or apathy of his work rises into nobler terribleness until we reach the point of the grotesque of albert durer where every now and then the playfulness or apathy of the painter rises into perfect sublime take the adam and eve for instance when he gave adam a bow to hold with a parrot on it and a tablet hung to it with albertus durer noricus faciebet fifteen o four thereupon his mind was not in paradise he was half in play half apathetic with respect to his subject thinking how to do his work well as a wise master graver and how to receive his just reward of fame but he rose into the true sublime in the head of adam and in the profound truthfulness of every creature that fills the forest so again in that magnificent coat of arms with the lady and the satyr as he cast the fluttering drapery hither and thither round the helmet and wove the delicate crown upon the woman's forehead he was in a kind of play 
but there is none in the dreadful skull upon the shield and in the night and death and in the dragons of the illustrations to the apocalypse there is neither play nor apathy but their grotesque is of the ghastly kind which best illustrates the nature of death and sin and all leads us to the consideration of the second state of mind out of which the noble grotesque is developed that is to say the temper of mockery b mockery or satire in the former part of this chapter when i spoke of the kinds of art which were produced in the recreation of the lower orders i only spoke of forms of ornament not of the expression of satire or humor but it seems probable that nothing is so refreshing to the vulgar mind as some exercise of this faculty more especially on the failings of their superiors and that wherever the lower orders are allowed to express themselves freely we may find humor more or less caustic becoming a principal feature in their work the classical and renaissance manufacturers of modern times having silenced the independent language of the operative his humor and satire pass away in the word wit which has of late become the especial study of the group of authors headed by charles dickens all this power was formerly thrown into noble art and became permanently expressed in the sculptures of the cathedral it was never thought that there was anything discordant or improper in such a position for the builders evidently felt very deeply a truth of which in modern times we are less cognizant that folly and sin are to a certain extent synonymous and that it would be well for mankind in general if all could be made to feel that wickedness is as contemptible as it is hateful so that the vices were permitted to be represented under the most ridiculous forms and all the coarsest wit of the workmen to be exhausted in completing the degradation of the creatures supposed to be subjected to them nor were even the supernatural powers of evil exempt from this species of satire for with whatever hatred or horror the evil angels were regarded it was one of the conditions of christianity that they should also be looked upon as vanquished and this not merely in their great combat with the king of saints but in daily and hourly combats with the weakest of his servants in proportion to the narrowness of the powers of abstract conception of the workmen the nobleness of the idea of spiritual nature diminished and the traditions of the encounters of men with fiends and daily temptations were imagined with less terrible circumstances until the agencies in which such warfare were almost always represented as vanquished with disgrace became at last as much the subjects of contempt as of terror the superstitions which represented the devil as assuming various contemptible forms of disguises in order to accomplish his purposes aided this gradual degradation of conception and directed the study of the workman to the most strange and ugly conditions of animal form until at last even in the most serious subject the fiends are oftener ludicrous than terrible nor indeed is this altogether avoidable for it is not possible to express intense wickedness without some condition of degradation malice subtlety and pride in their extreme cannot be written upon noble forms and i am aware of no effort to represent the satanic mind with the angelic form which has succeeded in painting milton succeeds only because he separately describes the movements of the mind and therefore leaves himself at liberty to make the form heroic but that form is never distinct enough to be painted dante who will not leave even external forms obscure degrades them before he can feel them to be demonical so also john bunyan both of them i think having firmer faith than milton's in their own creations and deeper insight in the nature of sin milton makes his fiends too noble and misses the foulness inconsistency and fury of wickedness his satan possesses some virtues not the less virtues for being applied to evil purpose courage resolution patience deliberation and counsel this latter being eminently a wise and holy character as opposed to the insania of excessive sin and all of this if not a shallow and false is a smooth and artistical conception 
On the other hand, I have always felt that there was a peculiar grandeur in the indescribable, ungovernable fury of Dante's fiends, ever shortening its own powers, and disappointing its own purposes. The deaf, blind, speechless, unspeakable rage, fierce as the lightning, but erring from its mark or turning senselessly against itself, and still further debased by foulness of form and action. Something is indeed to be allowed for the rude feelings of the time, but I believe all such men as Dante are sent into the world at the time when they can do their work best, and that it being appointed for him to give to mankind the most vigorous realization possible, both of hell and heaven, he was born both in the country and at the time which furnished the most stern opposition of horror and beauty, and permitted it to be written in the clearest terms. And, therefore, though there are passages in the inferno which it would be impossible for any poet now to write, I look upon it as all the more perfect for them. For there can be no question but that one characteristic of excessive vice is indecency, a general baseness in its thoughts and acts concerning the body, and that the full portraiture of it cannot be given without marking, and that in the strongest lines, this tendency to corporeal degradation, which, in the time of Dante, could be done frankly, but cannot now. And therefore, I think the twenty-first and twenty-second books of the Inferno the most perfect portraitures of fiendish nature which we possess, and at the same time, in their mingling of the extreme of horror, for it seems to me that the silent swiftness of the first demon, con lali aperte e sovra e pie legerio, cannot be surpassed in dreadfulness, with ludicrous actions and images. They present the most perfect instances of which I am acquainted of the terrible grotesque. But the whole of the inferno is full of this grotesque, as well as the fairy queen, and these two poems, together with the works of Albert Durer, will enable the reader to study it in its noblest forms without reference to Gothic cathedrals. Now, just as there are base and noble conditions of the apathetic grotesque, so also are there of this satirical grotesque. The condition which might be mistaken for it is that above described as resulting from the malice of men given to pleasure, and in which the grossness and foulness are in the workman as much as in his subject, so that he chooses to represent vice and disease rather than virtue and beauty, having his chief delight in contemplating them, though he still mocks at them with such dull wit as may be in him, because, as Young has said most truly, tis not in folly not to scorn a fool. Now it is easy to distinguish this grotesque from its noble counterpart by merely observing whether any forms of beauty or dignity are mingled with it, or not. For, of course, the noble grotesque is only employed by its master for good purposes, and to contrast with beauty. But the base workman cannot conceive anything but what is base, and there will be no loveliness in any part of his work, or, at the best, a loveliness measured by line and rule, and dependent on legal shapes of feature. But without resorting to this test, and merely by examining the ugly grotesque itself, it will be found that, if it belongs to the base school, there will be, first, no horror in it, secondly, no nature in it, and thirdly, no mercy in it. I say, first, no horror, for the base soul has no fear of sin, and no hatred of it, and however it may strive to make its work terrible, there will be no genuineness in the fear, the utmost it can do will be to make its work disgusting. Second, there will be no nature in it. It appears to be one of the ends proposed by Providence in the appointment of the forms of the brute creation, that the various vices to which mankind are liable should be severally expressed in them so distinctly and clearly as that men could not but understand the lesson. While yet these conditions of vice might, in the inferior animal, be observed without the disgust and hatred which the same vices would excite, if seen in men, and might be associated with features of interest which would otherwise attract and reward contemplation. Thus, ferocity, cunning, sloth, discontent, gluttony, uncleanness, and cruelty, 
are seen each in its extreme in various animals and are so vigorously expressed that when men desire to indicate the same vices in connection with human forms they can do it no better than by borrowing here and there the features of animals and when the workman is thus led to the contemplation of the animal kingdom finding therein the expressions of vice which he needs associated with power and nobleness and freedom from disease if his mind be of right tone he becomes interested in this new study and all noble grotesque is therefore full of the most admirable rendering of animal character but the ignoble workman is capable of no interest of this kind and being too dull to appreciate and too idle to execute the subtle and wonderful lines on which the expression of the lower animals depends he contents himself with vulgar exaggeration and leaves his work as false as it is monstrous a mass of blunt malice and obscene ignorance lastly there will be no mercy in it wherever the satire of the noble grotesque fixes upon human nature it does so with much sorrow mingled amidst its indignation in its highest forms there is an infinite tenderness like that of the fool in lear and even in its most heedless and bitter sarcasm it never loses sight altogether of the better nature of what it attacks nor refuses to acknowledge its redeeming or pardonable features but the ignoble grotesque has no pity it rejoices in iniquity and exists only to slander i have not space to follow out the various forms of transition which exist between the two extremes of great and base in the satirical grotesque the reader must always remember that although there is an infinite distance between the best and worst in this kind the interval is filled by endless conditions more or less inclining to the evil or the good impurity and malice stealing gradually into the nobler forms and invention and wit elevating the lower according to the countless minglings of the elements of the human soul c ungovernableness of the imagination the reader is always to keep in mind that if the objects of horror in which the terrible grotesque finds its materials were contemplated in their true light and with the entire energy of the soul they would cease to be grotesque and become altogether sublime and that therefore it is some shortening of the power or the will of contemplation and some consequent distortion of the terrible image in which the grotesqueness consists now this distortion takes place it was above asserted in three ways either through apathy satire or ungovernableness of imagination it is this last cause of the grotesque which we have finally to consider namely the error and wildness of the mental impressions caused by fear operating upon strong powers of imagination or by the failure of the human faculties in the endeavor to grasp the highest truths the grotesque which comes to all men in a disturbed dream is the most intelligible example of this kind but also the most ignoble the imagination in this instance being entirely deprived of all aid from reason and incapable of self-government i believe however that the noblest forms of imaginative power are also in some sort ungovernable and have in them something of the character of dreams so that the vision of whatever kind comes uncalled and will not submit itself to the seer but conquers him and forces him to speak as a prophet having no power over his words or thought only if the whole man be trained perfectly and his mind calm consistent and powerful the vision which comes to him is seen as in a perfect mirror serenely and in consistent with the rational powers but if the mind be imperfect and ill-trained the vision is seen as in a broken mirror with strange distortions and discrepancies all the passions of the heart breathing upon it in cross ripples till hardly a trace of it remains unbroken so that strictly speaking the imagination is never governed it is always the ruling and divine power and the rest of the man is to it only an instrument which it sounds or a tablet on which it writes 
clearly and sublimely if the wax be smooth and the strings true, grotesquely and wildly if they are stained and broken. And thus the Iliad, the Inferno, the Pilgrim's Progress, the Fairy Queen, are all of them true dreams. Only the sleep of the men to whom they came was the deep living sleep which God sends, with a sacredness in it, as of death the revealer of secrets. Now observe in this manner, carefully, the difference between a dim mirror and a distorted one, and do not blame me for pressing this analogy too far, for it will enable me to explain my meaning every way more clearly. Most men's minds are dim mirrors, in which all truth is seen, as St. Paul tells us, darkly. This is the fault most common and most fatal, dullness of the heart and mistiness of sight, increasing to utter hardness and blindness. Satan, breathing upon the glass, so that if we do not sweep the mist laboriously away, it will take no image. But, even so far as we are able to do this, we have still the distortions to fear, yet not to the same extent, for we can in some sort allow for the distortion of an image, if only we can see it clearly. And the fallen human soul, at its best, must be as a diminishing glass, and that a broken one, to the mighty truths of the universe round it. And the wider the scope of its glance, and the vaster the truths into which it obtains an insight, the more fantastic their distortion is likely to be, as the winds and vapors trouble the field of the telescope most when it reaches furthest. End of chapter 3, part 3. Recording by Todd.